Patrolman Eugene Bertrand spotted a car parked at the side of the road not long after midnight on September 3rd, 1965. The car was located on the Route 101 bypass between the small towns of Epping and Exeter, New Hampshire. Bertrand parked his cruiser and headed over to investigate. There was a lone woman in the car, nearly hysterical. The patrolman listened as the woman described the incident that had rattled her, forcing her to pull over for fear of crashing the car. She described a huge airborne object with flashing red lights that had followed her for nearly 10 miles. She said it flew just above the treetops, staying with her as she drove. Then it zoomed off into the night, never making a sound that she could hear. Eugene Bertrand listened to this story with the patience of a seasoned police officer. He looked around at the sky to humor the woman, but saw nothing. He could have left her there and gone on his way, shrugging her off as a kook. But he stayed with her for nearly 15 minutes to ensure that she was okay to drive home. After she left, Bertrand went on his way in his patrol car. He didn't believe her. He didn't know what she'd seen, but he knew that Pease Air Force Base was nearby, and he thought it was probably an airplane that had spooked the woman. But Bertrand's strange night wasn't over. In fact, it was just getting started. It would be several hours before Bertrand himself saw something he couldn't account for, something that took his breath away and made him question his own sanity. Patrolman Eugene Bertrand was only one of several people who would witness a series of unexplainable events that would become known as the Incident at Exeter, or the Exeter Incident. It's one of the most well-documented, unidentified flying object sightings in United States history, and it has sparked debate for decades. There have been numerous theories that tried to debunk the Exeter Incident. As recently as 2011, two skeptics have put forth what they deem a foolproof theory to explain what the eyewitnesses saw in New Hampshire in September 1965. This is the last in a long line of theories, which include numerous explanations given by the United States Air Force or other branches of the US government immediately following the incident. For some, these explanations are enough. They can pick one, attribute it, and move on. For others, there's much to be desired. So listen on as we explore one of the most famous and well-documented American UFO sightings, and determine for yourself if any of the explanations ring true. Part one, Norman Muscarello. It was common for Norman Muscarello who'd just turned 18, to hitchhike when he had no other means of transportation. It wasn't common, however, for him to be hitchhiking at such an early hour in the morning. He'd missed his ride back home to Exeter after visiting his girlfriend in a small town just over the Massachusetts-New Hampshire border. So when he headed back home that night, he figured he was in for a long walk and nothing more. But what he got was an experience that would change his life forever. 
He was in Kensington, a small town a few miles south of Exeter, walking along Route 150. Since it was nearly two o'clock in the morning, he didn't expect to be picked up. There weren't many cars passing at all, and the drivers of those that did pass weren't about to stop for anyone. So he kept on going. Then he came upon a stretch of road in which sat Mr. Dining's farm. There was a wide field on Norman Muscarello's right and a farmhouse up ahead, Mr. Dining's house. He said it was a clear night. There were no clouds, no rain, and plenty of stars visible in the night sky. There had been planes in the sky earlier in the night, Muscarello later recalled. That was a normal enough occurrence with Pease Air Force Base nearby. But he hadn't seen any planes for quite some time as he came upon Mr. Dining's farm. Beyond the field and the wall of trees backing it, Muscarella could see the glow of lights from the Hampton Beach area on New Hampshire's nearby Atlantic coast. He'd grown up in the area and he knew it well. He knew where the glow was coming from. But as he was passing the field, something caught his eye coming from the north and heading at a high rate of speed in a southeasterly direction, right toward him. Whatever it was, it was flying, and it had bright red lights on, blinking erratically. It was above him quickly, its lights nearly blinding him, preventing him from getting a good look at the object's shape and size. At the time, it seemed massive to him. He later recalled that it looked bigger than a barn, There was no discernible sound coming from the vehicle, although there were the sounds of frantic animals in Mr. Dining's barn. Horses were screaming in there, and it sounded like they were kicking the walls in their fright. Dogs were barking all over the countryside. But the vehicle made no sound as it zipped away from Norman Muscarello, leaving him dazed and blinking on the side of the road. He tried to clear the spots from his eyes, The lights on the aircraft had been bright enough to overwhelm the photosensitive cells in his retinas. But as soon as the spot started to clear, Muscarello looked into the sky and saw the object swooping back toward him. By this point, Norman was frightened. He was alone on the road, dealing with something his mind couldn't directly explain, and it seemed to be coming back. He started to run, Some accounts say he dove into the ditch by the side of the road, but Muscarello himself later said that this was inaccurate. He said he tripped and fell into the ditch and stayed there with his head down, only occasionally glancing up. When he did raise his gaze, he saw the object's lights were painting the side of the nearby house blood red. At the time, he didn't know whose house it was. It belonged to Mr. Dining's neighbors, but Muscarello wouldn't meet the owners until later. The object took off again, zooming away at a seemingly impossible clip. Frantic and scared, the teenager jumped up from his spot in the ditch, ran to the nearby home's front door, and began banging on it and shouting. No one answered. It seemed that no one was home. He only found out later that Mr. and Mrs. Brussel were home and they'd heard him banging and shouting at their front door. But they were well aware of the time and weren't about to open the door on what they thought was a crazed individual. 
At this point, Muscarello could think of nothing but getting away from that area and finding help. He ran back out to the road and saw a car coming. Not willing to risk them leaving without stopping, he ran out into the middle of the road and flagged the car down, begging for a ride. As it turned out, Muscarello knew the driver. The man, who'd had a woman with him in the car, was never named. Norman later said that the man was married and the woman in the car with him wasn't his wife, which was why he never told anyone who he was. Regardless, the unnamed driver agreed to give the clearly agitated teenager a ride to the Exeter police station. Since the driver was familiar with Muscarello, he knew the boy wasn't prone to panicked flights of fancy, so he knew something was up. At approximately 2.24 that morning, Norman Muscarello burst into the Exeter police station and proceeded to tell the dispatch officer, patrolman Reginald Scratch Toland, what he'd seen back in Kensington. Toland, to Muscarello's shock, wasn't surprised to hear the report. When the teenager asked him why he wasn't surprised, the patrolman said that he'd recently received two different calls from people in nearby areas, one in Raymond and one in Hampton. Both callers described a flying object with lights extremely similar to the one Muscarello had just described. Even if things had ended there, it would have been enough to make people consider the validity of his claims. The fact that Muscarello had seen something very similar to what other independent witnesses reported made dismissive explanations untenable. But the sightings weren't over. The strange events of that September morning were far from done. Scratch Toland called patrolman Eugene Bertrand back to the station, telling him briefly about Muscarello's story. Bertrand was curious, to say the least. He recalled what the woman parked on the side of the road earlier that night had told him. Now here was another witness saying something similar. He headed quickly back to the station. He wanted to have the teenager show him the place where he'd seen the object. He wanted to see if he could get a glimpse of the thing, if for no other reason than to explain it away in his own mind. Part two, Eugene Bertrand and David Hunt. Patrolman Eugene Bertrand and recent high school grad Norman Muscarello arrived near Mr. Dining's farm around three o'clock in the morning on September 3rd, 1965. Bertrand parked the cruiser near the field Muscarello had been passing when he'd seen the object in the sky. They looked out the windows for anything strange, but saw nothing. Just a normal early morning New Hampshire vista. A field, trees, a couple of houses, and a barn. Even though they could see the entire field, Bertrand wanted to get out and walk around a bit to have Muscarello walk him through his story again. The two left the cruiser and walked down into the field, gazing around curiously. Bertrand had his flashlight out, the beam stabbing the night as he swept it around without much intention. They hadn't been out in the field long before the horses in the nearby barn began acting agitated again, just as they had when Muscarello had first seen the object. Dogs started barking all around, and then the two men watched in awe as the object rose silently over the trees ahead. There were blinking lights on the object, 
pulsing in a pattern. It seemed to sway back and forth over the field, swooping in to within 100 feet of the men. It came close enough that Bertrand, acting on instinct, dropped to one knee and drew his surface weapon. When he had a chance to think about it, he put his weapon away and dragged Muscarello back to the cruiser. Back in the vehicle, the two men observed the object while Bertrand called it in. He reportedly said over the police radio, My God, I see the damn thing myself. As they watched it from the vehicle, the men could discern no wings, no rotors, and no visible engines. Bertrand said it was a brilliant, roundish object. But there was yet another patrolman on his way to the area. The exact details of his arrival conflict. Some reports say David Hunt was already on his way to the area. Others say Bertrand called him there after seeing the object for himself. However he got there, the fact remains that the UFO was still in the sky when he arrived. He saw it there and later said that it did things no plane could do, like floating and wobbling. Not long after David Hunt arrived, the object sped off, heading toward Hampton and the New Hampshire coastline. Rattled and reeling, the three men headed back to the Exeter police station to write official reports on what they'd just seen. None of them had a logical explanation for it. They knew it wasn't a plane. It couldn't have been. At least not any plane they'd ever heard of. Its movement and the fact that it made no noise ruled out other flying vehicles such as helicopters. Back at the Exeter station, Patrolman Toland, still working the radio, got a call from a Hampton telephone operator. She explained that she'd talked to a distressed man who was at a payphone in Hampton. He said he'd been followed by a flying object and that it was still there. Before she could connect him to the police, the call was disconnected. He hadn't given his exact location. At this point, having heard from both David Hunt and Eugene Bertrand, men he worked with and knew well. Tolan knew that something seriously strange was going on. He contacted the Hampton Police Department, who reported the sightings to Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth. As Hunt and Bertrand wrote their reports at the Exeter Police Station, government officials were on their way to Exeter to conduct an official investigation. Part three, investigation and explanation. When Norman Muscarello was brought home early that morning by an Exeter policeman, his mother asked the officer what Norman had done now. While not a troublemaker, Norman had his share of minor run-ins with the local law. It had never been anything serious, but his mother had no way of knowing that her house was about to turn into a circus because of what Norman Muscarello had seen. By eight o'clock that morning, there were Air Force personnel journalists, and photographers milling around. In a 1980 interview, Muscarella recalled the name of a major Kehoe from Pease Air Force Base as one of the men in his mother's living room. According to Muscarello, Kehoe yelled at him, telling him to shut up, don't say anything, and don't sign anything. Muscarello, however, had already spoken to at least one reporter about the incident. A sergeant who'd arrived with Major Kehoe 
reportedly had a briefcase attached to his wrist with handcuffs. At some point, the man had taken off the cuffs and left the case on the kitchen table. Norman Muscarello's mother glanced into the case and saw what would later be publicly known as the Air Force Blue Book. Reports about other UFO sightings and the Air Force's attempts to explain them. According to Muscarello, Major Kehoe saw her looking through the papers and started shouting at her. His mother snapped, and she said that if the Major didn't like her looking through things left on her kitchen table, they could get the hell out of her house. Later that day, officers Bertrand and Hunt were called into the Exeter police station to talk with some Air Force officials. They were told not to tell anyone about the sighting, but both officers had already spoken to a journalist. It seems that the Air Force's first instinct was to try to keep a lid on the sightings. But since that was already out the window, they started trying other tactics, searching for reasonable explanations that could clear up the controversy. It's easy to assume that the Air Force would have tried to discredit the eyewitnesses had two of them not been police officers, well known in the community. Indeed, both men knew how crazy it sounded. They effectively put their careers on the line to tell about what they'd seen. And as things progressed, they wouldn't be spared ridicule. But they still stood by what they saw. So did Norman Muscarello. One of the first things Air Force officials said after learning about the strange sighting was that it was a refueling operation. There had been an Air Force exercise in the area that night called Operation Big Blast. But according to Air Force officials, the exercise had ended around two in the morning. Bertrand pointed out that he saw the object in the sky nearly an hour after Big Blast was supposed to have ended. Additionally, Bertrand had served in the Air Force and was familiar with air refueling operations. He was confident what he'd seen wasn't a tanker plane. Once the Air Force learned this, they changed their explanation to stars and planets twinkling during a temperature inversion, which could create visual distortions due to cold and warm air pockets interacting. But this was quickly dismissed as the weather wasn't right for it. Bertrand also insisted that what he saw was a flying object with lights, not a natural phenomenon. Another Air Force officer was confident that he knew what had caused the sighting. He insisted that the airport landing lights at Pease Air Force Base explained it. But when he gathered onlookers to test this theory, things didn't work out as planned. Standing among the onlookers, he radioed to have the lights turned on. When nothing happened, he grew impatient and told them again to turn the lights on. The reply came quickly. The lights were on. They just weren't visible. The officer was driven away from the scene amid laughter and mockery from the gathered crowd. Many other explanations were put forth over the next few months, including things like swamp gas, corona discharge from power lines, and even a local advertising plane that towed a rectangular sign with white lights on it. With further digging, all these explanations were dismissed as possibilities. One skeptic even posited that it was caused by a prankster with a kite adorned with flashing red lights. 
this could account for the strange movement and low flight of the object. But the logic doesn't hold up. The prankster in question would have had to know that Norman Muscarella would be hitchhiking home at that time of the morning, or been confident that someone would come by and see the kite, which was certainly not guaranteed in such a relatively deserted place and time. It also wouldn't explain the reportedly large size of the object, or the fact that two different motorists had insisted that the object had been following them in their cars for miles. There seemed to be no suitable explanation, no matter how badly Air Force officials and skeptics wanted one. But there was still one explanation to come, decades later. Part 4. Exeter Made Famous In the weeks following the sighting, dozens of reports were called in around that part of New Hampshire. In fact, there were other sightings that very night, aside from the woman in the car and the man calling on the payphone. But the focus seemed to be on what the three men saw that night. They were, after all, the most credible witnesses. But long after that early September morning, Project Blue Book put forth an official explanation of the sightings by Muscarello, Bertrand, and Hunt. Blue Book said that Operation Big Blast was to blame for the sightings. Bertrand and Hunt strongly disagreed with this assessment. They wrote to Project Blue Book, explaining that what they saw was not a conventional aircraft, nor a temperature inversion, nor any other of the explanations hypothesized since the September 3rd sighting. They took pains to discuss and verify that these explanations were inadequate to describe what they'd seen. They received no answer but they did receive considerable ridicule, thanks largely to the official explanation. The story had made national news, and a New Hampshire writer was even working on a book about it. In December of 1965, the two patrolmen wrote another letter to Project Blue Book. In January of 1966, they finally got a reply. It was from Lieutenant Colonel John Spaulding, from the office of the Secretary of the Air Force. And it said, in effect, that after further consideration, the Air Force had no explanation for what the men saw that night. After much waffling, the Air Force had changed their story. The flying object remained unidentified. A book written by John G. Fuller titled, Incident at Exeter, was released later in 1966. Fuller, a reporter, went on to write several books and news articles about UFOs over his career. And Incident at Exeter is among the most famous. It propelled the story into the national spotlight, even if the incident technically happened in Kensington and not Exeter. It also made the sighting there one of the most well-documented and often discussed UFO sightings in American history. Between 1965 and 2011, there was little to report about the nature of the incident. It seemed it would be forever unsolved. But then two men published an explanation in the Skeptical Inquirer. The piece is titled Exeter Incident Solved. The authors of the piece James Magaha and Joe Nickel 
said that the lights reported by Bertrand were the key to solving the mysterious sighting. After seeing the object over the field, Eugene Bertrand described the pattern of the pulsing lights. He said they blinked in a sequence of one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one, over and over again. This, the authors explained, is the same sequence that would be found on an Air Force KC-97 refueling plane. They said that the lights, located on the rear belly of the plane, would reflect off the refueling boom, which would hang down from the plane at an approximate 60-degree angle. This, too, matched something said by Bertrand when he described what he'd seen. The plane would circle over an area with these bright lights on until the plane that needed to be refueled arrived, at which point it would dim the lights so as not to blind the pilot of the other plane. According to the authors, these types of planes would have surely been in use during Operation Big Blast. And during that time, they would have been in regular use around Pease Air Force Base. But there are some lingering problems with this explanation. The first and most obvious is that if these planes were in regular use in the area, why wouldn't the residents of that area recognize them? The skeptical inquirer explanation also makes little mention of the altitude at which these planes would normally operate. Would one of these planes fly so low over the treetops and roads to make people think it would swoop down on them? And if that was the case, why did those who saw the object or objects report a concerning lack of noise? And why did they report the object moving in ways that defied conventional flight, saying that it floated and changed direction quickly? But perhaps the most glaring error of this explanation is the fact that Eugene Bertrand had experience in refueling while in the Air Force. Presumably, he would be able to recognize a massive refueling plane when he saw it, even at night. In fact, refueling was one of the first explanations put forth by the Air Force immediately after the incident. But when they learned that Bertrand had experience in the area, they quickly changed their story. It seems that every explanation put forth has trouble holding up to scrutiny. And at this point, Muscarello, Bertrand and Hunt are no longer around to insist that what they saw has yet to be explained in a sufficient manner. Whether what they saw was a top secret military plane or something from a distant galaxy is up for debate. In fact, as has clearly been the case, whether they saw something out of the ordinary at all has been the subject of much conversation. The three men were just a few and a growing number of people who've seen something in the sky they can't explain or identify. While the Exeter incident was one of the most well-documented UFO sightings, it certainly wasn't the last. There are certainly explanations for many of the things people see in the distant night sky, but there are just as many sightings that don't have valid explanations. And the number of people who believe they've seen something not of this world is continually growing. Are you one of those people? Head to the nearest window. Look out, look up. You never know what you might see. Hey guys, thanks for listening. 
I want to give you all a quick heads up regarding some upcoming political ads you may start hearing leading up to this year's presidential election. These ads do not represent my own political viewpoint. So if you hear a political ad play on the podcast and it's not in my own voice, then it has absolutely nothing to do with me personally as a podcaster. Thank you again for being a dedicated listener of mine. And I can't wait to have another amazing year with you guys. I'll see you in the next episode.